Over the years, they've grown bigger, stronger, fatter. The hunger's insatiable, buddy. I mean, fuck. You guys are fucking nuts. How much of that shit have you been smoking? Too fucking much is how much. We blaze for real 24-7. No joke. But we also know our shit. Before us, everyone knew the awful truth. Oh, how they screamed. It was a living nightmare. So we, the non-perishables, created a story. The story of the great beyond. A place where the gods care for you. And all your wildest and wettest dreams would come true. They would go out those doors happy instead of shitting themselves. Yeah. Wait, wait. So you're telling me you wrote the song? I can't take full credit. I wrote the music. Twink here is my lyricist. We both drop it right and drop it all the time. Boom. One and all, welcome back to the latest edition of Nick's Nonfiction. Here with your host, Nick Munez. Attention all shoppers. There's a special going on over on the Patreon aisle. Make sure to check that out. Today on the show, we are debriefing Benjamin's lore, the lore of the supermarket, with the secret life of groceries. Benjamin is portraying a capitalist wet dream today. Quote, Shopping does not merely reflect love, but is a major form in which love is manifested and reproduced. In our consumerist culture, shopping is a noble act. In order to beat the Russians, you're helping by getting diabetes. The story goes much deeper, taking turns against big grocery today, not just fat-shaming the consumer. Thanks, Benjamin. The introduction to the book focused on this New York City wet market after closing. Did a lot of research. Benjamin was writing about the fish heads, the guts, all slopped into a pile sold as chum. He thinks he's Upton Sinclair. We all know that wet markets are dirty. How about you do some reporting on Fauci peddling pangolin meat? Ben said, slime is removed and high power blast hose with separate nozzles for green concentrated soap is used to spray down against the sludge. Yo, when I worked at a sushi restaurant, we called Crab Mix Hot Dog of the Sea. There's spoilers ahead, not everything you eat is 100% safe. So, according to totalitarian logic, that's too much of risk. We should shut down the world and outlaw food. <laughs> the entire melodrama, melodrama of the theater of food we have ahead is going to take us from the earlier days of Cold War supermarkets. And we're going to look down the barrel of the future, the intangible grocery store bought to you by Amazon. <laughs> Benjamin spent time on, like, fishing boats, went around the world for this book. You guys hear about Aldi, this blowing up brand in Europe? They have announced they have this new store brand peanut. It's called Aldi's Nuts. Gotti! Uh, in 2018, Americans spent $701 billion at supermarket-style grocery stores. This is our largest expenditure by a wide margin. Every time you go to the supermarket, you get to vote with your dollar. I got kicked out of the grocery store for inappropriate behavior in the produce section. All I did was take a leak. A hundred years ago, nine out of ten Americans worked in food production. Now it's 3%. We gotta pump those numbers back up. Maybe today I could convince some people to grow some micro-greens of their own. It's going to be a hippie episode, Operation Free the Food, and definitely a fun one. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. About the author Benjamin Lore, no Wikipedia page. The only thing I found on this guy was a Reddit AMA. 
it's a very bad sign. When you read the description for this book that's posted on all the websites he's selling it, it sounds like it's just going to be a stern talking to for overweight Americans. Benjamin Lohr thinks it's your fault that 80% of the food in the supermarket is spiked with sugar. I'm going to be presenting harder from my side than usual today, unless you want to be lectured about how fat you are for 300 pages. Uh, we did Fast Food Nation in the past, and we love uncovering these government programs that keep things like McDonald's afloat because they need it. Benjamin Lohr is taking the daring position that it's your fault that these companies get <laughs> propped up for fake beef. How come Bill Gates has a vegan agenda and this guy's a meat eater? Ask big questions here, and it's a passionate issue for me. The first books that I would really take out of the library... It was like nutritional science. Sugar Nation was a really good one. You know, you have a hunch from a young age that food pyramid is all bullshit. Yeah, you should eat eight slices of bread a day. We sure about that? I went on to take a few dietitian classes in college, so subject fascinates me. I got a six-pack of my own people out there. I'm not trying to sound like an authority figure here, but I treat my fucking body like a science experiment. And I'll let you know what works. And just so I don't have to rehash, you know, my position from previous shows, um, I don't believe that we should be regulating how much soda you're allowed to drink like some people in the political spectrum do. You should just be able to educate people on what kind of poison Coca-Cola is pouring down our throats. I'm going to sound like George Carlin today with all these wild theories. George Carlin died of a heart attack from drinking aspartame, which is Diet Coke. This shit, there's poison surrounding us everywhere. We're living in a minefield. Really some, like, uh, wake-up red pill quotes, I guess you would call them, in this book as well. And we will have our themed episode for February next week. Don't worry, we're talking about love, getting sexy for the month of love. Uh, Patreon slash The Niche, patreon.com. It's picking up over there, and it's picking up quick, as well as the memes you might want to check out. Instagram, uh, Harry Schwant. Here is an advertisement. Chapter 1, Benjamin Lore, The Secret Life of Groceries. Trade your hose. Trader Joe's. In 1984, Gustave Riviere had the best fruit stand at the Central Market. He states, These days it is not enough to simply produce fruit. One must obtain fruit that is beautiful. Good taste is not necessary, just beauty, gloss, and size. They are really more intended to dazzle the eye than to satisfy the palate. Since 1894, the best grocers, including Gustave, knew that, for the most part, people are visual eaters. And as long as you got a big spread of beautiful colors, people are going to buy an orange that they're going to let rot in their refrigerator for the next two months. But it looked pretty, so they bought it. Stack six foot, seven foot, eight foot bunch. Working produce, I want to go home. Joe Colombo was a 35-year-old Mr. Smartest Man in the Room up in the Pacific Northwest. 1965, Joe Colombo was the owner of a small fleet of convenience stores, the Pronto Markets. It's this folksy endeavor. He staffs all of his men in red and white checkered shirts. Joe buys these from Sears. A real simpler day in America where you could start your own business. Merritt was the name of his dairy supplier. It's the most profitable section for 1960s grocer. I'm saying Trader Joe's today, the produce is where they're cashing out. And they'll make you pay $6 a pound for a papaya. 
uh, like in the 60s, milk was where all the money was. Joe employed 250 milkmen a day, dropping off 500 bottles each six days a week. This is a milk monopoly. Author Benjamin wrote, The milkman gets a middle class job, and every bottle sold over the threshold is lucre. Lucre warm milk? What does this word mean? 1960s. These guys are making commission on milk, and they're banging wives as they go door to door. Do Amazon delivery drivers make commission? No, and they're delivering lettuce now. They get tipped? No, you're not allowed to tip them either. If Joe Colombo started his business today, he could have just hired 250 drones to deliver the milk. <laughs> Simpler times. Ben said the business went sour because refrigerating had gone mainstream, and suddenly everyone demands their milk at 7 a.m. No earlier, no later. <laughs> ben kind of holding on to the past here. I'm going to drink my milk when I want to. Refrigerating deserves to go mainstream. That's a huge feat of man. We used to have to deliver ice from the North Pole. You didn't know this about the 1960s. The milkman would just show up at 10 a.m. Like, you're already gone for work at that point. People wind up buying less milk as refrigeration gets bigger and bigger. Maybe the people were realizing they don't need GHB from a cow in their gut every single morning. Yeah, I'm a pussy. I drink almond milk. Almonds ain't got titties. Merritt's Farm reduced their 100,000 cows by 30%. That's a really good steak year. They had to do a mass slaughter because no one's into milk. Benjamin is framing the issue that consumers got too greedy. <laughs> like, in the 1970s, there was a health craze and people were demanding skim milk. Those are the dumbest things. That's just the pasteurization farm is then separating it into different parts they could sell back to you. What do you think you're getting skinny by the milk you drink? Yeah, it's not the piece of Dutch chocolate cake you're eating along with it. <laughs> Benjamin, he's like trying to say, people, the consumers, put Joe Colombo out of business. Joe, you gotta keep up with the times, buddy. Start selling the milk to the grocers. Merritt told Joe, the farm is being sold to Southland. You should know this name if you live on planet Earth. Southland owns the corporation 7-Eleven and a bunch of other convenience stores. 7-Eleven is the most abundant franchise on the planet. Joe decides to get out of the milk game entirely. He's going to take a pivot. I thought this to be insane. Southland, they started buying up the individual farms. This is like how you read about a hippie farmer's 1970s. They have a plot of land and then Purdue Chicken buys the plot of land 100 meters up the river and then dams up the river so you can't have an all-natural farm. It's kind of deep here. Joe Colombo is just saying, oh, it's too hard. <laughs> 70s was kind of the birth of 7-Eleven is what I want to get out here. I talk about 7-Eleven on stage three times a fucking week. <laughs> this is the funniest store on earth. There's a crackhead outside of every single location magically somehow. 7-Eleven sells that lucre farms crap that's like their milk brand if you have resorted to buying milk at 7-eleven you're probably abandoning one of your firstborn children it's nest quicker bust you can't be buying that lucre southland farm crap <laughs> it's a great time to be alive you used to sure be able to go to the coliseum and watch a man fight a lion well for under four dollars i could buy 32 ounces of beer and a foot-long hot dog from a convenience store about to chill out with one of the vagabonders outside of this store. 
this super corporation Southland, they claim to have invented the convenience store. <laughs> right, the bazaar, the traveling salesman never existed. Like, you know, the general stores from the 1800s existed. You could go get your ammo, your smokes, and your snake oil all in one stop. They would tailor your boots. Like, you could buy hardware at those old cowboy convenience stores. Southland out here trying to uh, change the definition of convenience. <laughs> uh, big quote coming up. These guys really did build their bones on the ice trade. The quote goes, the Chinese have cut and stored it since at least 1000 BCE, ice. The Romans kept it in covered pits, using horse-drawn carts to haul giant chunks down from the Alps. And in America, through the entire 19th century, there was a raging multi-million dollar industry dedicated to manually carving up lakes in the northeast, prying out giant blocks, hand-packing the ice with sawdust, and shipping them all over the world from Mexico to Calcutta. Forget that salt book we read. We need a book about ice. They said, what was that movie? Uh, Castaway, Tom Cruise is on an island by himself. He comes back, and one of the first things he does is just stare at the ice in the refrigerator. If you live in a warm climate, ice is magic. <laughs> it's a pretty badass name for a profession also, the Iceman. Joe Colombo starts delivering ice at the same time that 7-Eleven is blowing up. Southland opens a series of shacks in Texas to make their distribution easier, and they start selling milk, eggs, along with their ice, therefore classifying it as a general convenience store. Voila, this model blew up by 1951, and they were doing $70 million a year in Texas. Joe Colombo saw this trend, and so he built his own freezer warehouse to maximize his milk margins out here. This guy combined his knowledge of the ice trade and the milk trade, was able to blow it up to a bigger scale. Ben says, his employees would tell me that Joe has a photographic memory that he can read 1,200 words per minute, that he adds, multiplies, divides lists of figures in his brain quicker than they could ever scan them, that he knows the names of all of his employees and their spouses' names and their dates of hire, their birthdays, their wedding anniversaries. That's the boss. And you get to make commission on your ice. I would work for Mr. Colombo. Is the origins of Trader Joe. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Ben writes, by 1967, he had successfully envisioned the consumer of 2017. By 1978, he had perfectly strategized private labeling that has come to dominate the industry. Even as competitors are still playing catch-up, trying to understand and mimic it. Joe Colombo was an innovator in the sector of groceries. He is the Brian Chesky of supermarkets. This guy would write what were called theory papers in his free time. He would estimate how big his business could possibly be if there were currency fluctuations in the future. These random variables he was plugging in just for fun to be ready for every possible outcome. This guy is doing like military strategy. He's not selling peaches. One of these friggin' papers he wrote was about after Vietnam, all the boys coming home were expecting their chocolate ration to be the same exact brand, because some chocolate's more bitter than the others. So he starts stocking his shelves with the exact sugar that the soldiers want. If you're like Whole Foods and you watch the ever-changing food pyramid and tailor it in your store to what people think is healthy, this month cauliflower pasta is healthy this month fucking toe jam is healthy 
but whatever they tell you on the news is the new trend just stock that on your store this guy was able to figure it out before the internet the big algorithmic change the general store is credited with is standardizing prices so this wasn't a thing until the 70s you could go to a different store and try to beat the it was a free market like you go across the street and you only save one penny on gas it seems kind of controlled the chapter takes like another step back before it takes a step forward and it focuses on a name that probably the whole chapter should have been about forget this trader joe guy we got john kroger 1916 was the first self-service store where you would walk around the store yourself and collect what you wanted at all those cowboy convenience stores you had to point behind the counter for the guy with the shotgun to give it to you this john kroger man in 1960 this guy really invented the convenience store and this is how our current shopping system works ever since around the 40s and 50s otherwise we would still be trading at the bazaar like middle easterners benjamin lore was trying to explain that every growing store during the 1920s 30s were copying kroger's model and after the 60s everybody was copying trader joe's papers his analyzation papers they were basically algorithms before the computer these some people turn the wheel before it's ready to be turned i want to spend a minute on that name kroger here i mean this shit goes deep this is my carlin moment here let me spurg out kroger family they're more into monopolies than innovation so yeah you have to focus the first chapter on the entrepreneur joe colombo this kroger shit is mafioso as fuck they just buy up any supermarket they don't want to be their competition here in colorado we have safeway and king supers they both sell kroger brand nuts and all that shit how come my club card the reward thing works interchangeably at both places now, if you live on the West Coast, you have Vons and Ralphs. I've tested it. My King Supers card from the middle of the country works at both of those stores. You know, King Supers, <laughs> my supermarket last year got massacred. Yo, <laughs> I tried this on stage. It kind of hit. There was only one guy that died during the Boston Massacre, Crispus Attucks. It's, and we still classify it as this big bloody event. They were throwing snowballs at each other. No joke. King Supers? Eight people died trying to buy feta cheese? I'm freaking out over here. <laughs> it's been closed for almost a year. I'm scared by fucking I'm going to die when I go try to buy a pineapple. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so my Kroger card, it works at King Supers, Vons, Ralph's, Safeway. And I haven't tried this yet, but on the East Coast, I bet your club card would work at Pathmark as well as ShopRite. And it's all about this illusion of choice that we're allowed to choose where we eat. <laughs> this is like a testable phenomena. Of course, my uh, Kroger card isn't going to work at Trader Joe's, so you do have choice. What's the explanation for keeping this monopoly hidden? Do you see what I'm saying here? Just name all of the stores Kroger. But no, there is Vons, which is a little bit less classy than Ralph's. <laughs> it's a class system that they're ingraining into your consciousness. Albertsons says they run Safeway. You know, this is their parent company. And when you look into who runs Albertsons, it's Cerebrus Capital Management. 
who also does management for Kroger. <laughs> it's all fucking interconnected. They're just a bunch of shell corporations for these subsidiaries from the government. We, you got to go back and listen to a fast food nation again, which is in the Library of Congress. And also check out all the Patreon is the Library of Alexandria, baby. <laughs> Get that uh, sale in the produce aisle. The shit goes deep, guys. Uh, keep going down the rabbit hole. You're just going to keep peeling back layers and it'll never make sense. I just don't know what all the illusions are supposed to be doing any good for. He spent 20 pages on the startup of Piggly Wiggly. It's basically the Trader Joe's of the South. They took over because they were implementing Henry Ford's production line. They did like the uh, conveyor belts for the first time. And then he talked a little bit about Brian Chesky here, which we know from the Airbnb book. Brian Chesky was able to target all the Trivago sites that funnel people into booking at Marriott. You know what I'm saying here? All of these people are able to implement one friggin' uh, supply chain aspect and make their business better. Uh, that whole thing, Piggly Wiggly and Trader Joe's today, they started at around the same time. They both have 530 locations, give or take. One final quote from Ben, blowing Trader Joe's to end the chapter. Trader Joe's invented modern consumer staples like almond butter. Yeah, Native Americans never did that. And sold excellent brie from France cheaper than Velveeta in America without losing money per sale. And it did all this with essentially no press outreach, shunning the mainstream media requests for access, and spending a fraction of what its competition did on advertising. Do you think Aldi was able to blow up in America by selling... Uh, cheddar cheese as a premium export they took the shittiest cheese from france and sold it to americans like it's fancy and that's why we should love trader joe's chapter two distribution of responsibility benjamin got holed up in a hotel in wisconsin meeting with lynn riles a woman who smokes two packs of cigarettes a day and drinks a six pack of pepsi every single morning aspartame Ben said she had a disgusting cough to listen to, wet and moldy, a tumbling of moss and a rotten sponge. Lynn is a queen of a boys club. She's running her own trucking distribution center. She works a bunch of cheesehead men, sends them out on the road for weeks at a time. We get one of the better quotes on the industry here. Industrial food is a paranoid business. Big, fat, pushy corporations all clinging to their tiny edge, well-burned by bad press, convinced that customers are skittish and insane, best treated like children to be protected for their own good from information that they can neither pass, assess, nor understand. You have to be told by the industry of food what is good for you, because we are insane consumers. We've talked about Machiavellianism on the show before, We'll read the book eventually. Does this sound a little bit like lying to you for your own good? The government has this same parochial philosophy. We have to tell you because you're too dumb. We can't just give you the information and let you decide. We have to lie to you. Ad gag laws I don't think should even exist. Do we know what these are? Like, if you run a <laughs> uh, publication where you're supposed to be researching things... If you research a 
slaughterhouse and put some of their information out there, they can sue you and raid your uh, house like Project Veritas. It's called ad gags. <laughs> You're just not allowed to have free speech about some things. Some agricultural secrecy is more classified than 9-11 truth. <laughs> like, you go to jail for a life if you just write one column about how Purdue abuses their chickens. It's a sad turn that I'll avoid taking for the show here. Ben really went into detail about the horrors of the uh, slaughterhouses. We did a whole chapter of that Fast Food Nation about the Greeley dehiding machine. You could turn a dude into a wallet. They're some of the most powerful, dangerous machines maiming men. It's crazy, Ben. Lynn made Ben sign a slew of disclosures before visiting her center. He wasn't supposed to tell all of this stuff. And, I don't know, gag on this, Lynn. Ben said... Boxes were often misdated and shipped to incorrect destinations. Workers on the line had a gallon-sized bag of hard-boiled quail eggs that they ate like popcorn. <laughs> I don't know why I found that one so funny. Definitely sanitary. Direct quote. People whip their dicks out, Lynn exclaims. You'd be shocked at how many men are driving around in their cars with dicks out. She continues, I've called in so many DUIs. So cocky. Malt liquor in their cup holder. Yoo-hoo, I can see you. Lynn is wrangling a bunch of wild men out here. They're getting drunk. <laughs> it's the profession where you spend the most time on the road trucking good to hear a lot of them are alcoholics ben t talked to one of the drivers who said the more you stay in the truck the inaction itself grows like a depressive mold <laughs> these are the white blood cells of america they're supposed to make us healthier bring us the nutrition we need there's like an ad gag on trucker sadness i bet nobody knew this trucking has the fifth highest suicide rate of every profession in the united states you're stuck in the cab. This <laughs> trucker is saying it grows like a depressive mold. Are we sure this guy wasn't a poet? This is the truck driver? Direct quote. Sure, Ben. Sleeping with a cooled load attached, one of the drivers said, It is a sonic blanket muffling all other sounds in the dark. A silence at 60 decibels. <laughs> These are the most well-articulated drivers on earth. Let me give you some specs on the community here. Trucking used to be like the American dream. I mean, in the sense that you could buy a house and a car on a 40-hour work week. It goes, the trucking industry does a gargantuan 10.7 billion tons of freight per year, which breaks down to 350 pounds per man, woman, and child per day. It is the most common in form of employment in the majority of American states with more than 12.6 million commercial drivers circulating our highways. And what happens when all of that goes away for Elon Musk's Tesla truck? We read that uh, baseball book, and it talked all about how a lot of Americans were employed by Rawling and Spalding, some of these really big gear factories, and people had pride in their jobs, is what I'm trying to get at here. I have an uncle who was a trucker, and for every Christmas, he would give us gallons of goldfish. He shipped for Pepperidge Farms. It was the happiest thing. It brought our family together just because we had pride in whatever the fuck Americans made. Everything has been outsourced. Lynn was giving her drivers Walter White meth. 
like she was saying, she gave them all kinds of pharmaceuticals to stay awake on the road. Once Lynn's uh, driver inserts her trailer into their assigned gate, their work is done. So the truckers start getting, like, <laughs> dangerously hammered in every city across the country because they delivered the payload. You put the truck in a fucking parking lot and then go get drunk at a biker bar. Ben was saying the trucker bars were some of the most enjoyable places he ever spent time. The truckers would say they go home with two or three hundred dollars per week. And at the time, Lynn makes a dollar twenty per mile. So they'll do like a twelve hundred mile trek almost across the country and then they get two hundred dollars for it <laughs> at the end of the chapter. I mean, all of their living expenses are taken care of. You're a slave. If, well, if you're not building towards anything, how is this different than indentured servitude? The end of the chapter got sappy. Lynn was like, I had to go in debt to start this business. You need to cry for me. Ben, you can't have us be sympathetic to both the entrepreneurs and their workers. I feel a million times worse for these truck drivers who are fucking sliding on black ice. You ever see those trucker offshoots? <laughs> You know, they send it into the sand if they're a runaway truck downhill. This is a death job. It's a fucking nightmare. You could die at any second. But no, we should feel bad for Lynn now because she took an entrepreneurial risk. Trucking, it's been pimped out in the last 20 years. Listen to this quote. The structure that allows carriers to pressure drivers into teams are essentially the same as the structures that keep drivers trapped across the system. This is not far from sharecropping. Desiree, another distributor, says it's debt bondage. It's sharecropping where instead of the field, they are tenants on wheels. <laughs> Coming from a powerful black woman. Like, I don't know what to tell you, man. It's sharecropping. I don't even know what that is. That's some, like, Mesopotamian shit where we really started to enslave people. <laughs> the American dream. Trucking is such a free thing. I hope we have some truckers who listen. Your job's infinitely better than mine, I'm sure. Fucking, <laughs> I work at grocery stores. I'm team train out here. Like, um, you know how women are into truckers? Like, powerful women, apparently. This Lynn lady, this Desiree lady. And you know, because, like, oh, he's not in an office all day. He's actually doing a real man's job. I think women are into truckers because it fulfills their fantasy of potentially being murdered. You know, if you hitchhike with a trucker, your chances of death are infinitely higher than if you ride the rails like a true American. Train hopping, I think, is more American than killing a hooker at a pit stop. <laughs> a lot lizard. Shout out Mark Twain. It's trite to say here. We got a really good quote to end the chapter about, you know, it's not how it used to be. It's harder to make a dollar. Listen to this one. That fresh apple you bite into has typically been sitting in dormancy for close to a year. Red cherries, the epitome of summer freshness, might have been stuck stabilized for two and a half months. Bananas, avocados, tomatoes, and limes land somewhere in between. Deo. There are exceptions. Even in perfect conditions, most leafy greens deteriorate in just under three weeks. But even that would be thought of as a miracle when earlier grocers had three to four days to get them from field to fridge. Oof. <laughs> I say us, the peons. We have never tasted non-iodized salt. None of us truly know what fresh produce is. All this shit is like... 
I've been sitting in a factory for two years. <laughs> the way it is. Chapter 3, Self-Realization Through Snacking. Ben, attending the fancy food show for this chapter. It is 300,000 square feet of demonstration space, 8,000 80,000 products, 47,000 food professionals gathered in a shrine to specialized food. This is like the world's fair for food. This is a supermarket sweep to the 20th degree. Have you ever seen the movie Idiocracy? They have a Costco with a subway in it. You can't even walk the full distance. He's in the world's biggest convention center to talk about food. Ben states, in many ways, we are living in the age of specialty. The entire category gesturing towards an authenticity the rest of the food system left behind. Um, like, look around you, man. People will cross state lines to try a slice of pizza they saw on Instagram. Everybody loves specialization in today's day and age. If you call yourself an artisanal grilled cheese shop, you can charge people $20 for Wonder Bread. Boomers... We're all about bang for your buck. I'm going to go get the unlimited breadsticks at Olive Garden. Yo, free salad bar at Charlie Brown's. Millennials, as Ben is saying, are into this specialization. We need to feel like we're having a novel experience that nobody else ever had. Handmade, whatever. Ben called the fancy food show a yuppie Halloween. <laughs> Imagine like all the pickling mason jars. Herky Jerky was the name of the first je uh, vendor that he showed up at, and they were doing dried meat. They ensure, Ben, our jerky has better snack-divation than the competition. <laughs> snack-divation, we made up a word, so it works. Peapods were the next guys that tried to hook Ben. They told him that eyes are the window to the soul, and they gave Ben an eye exam in the middle of the convention. <laughs> so they match him up with the best peas for how many rods and cones he has. I think it's a reverse Halloween here. The vendors are tricking you, and sometimes you get a treat. Ben thought, the best vendor he saw at this entire stadium was the condiment salesman, Julie. She had a dip that would change your life. Slossa. Cold slaw salsa. Julie explains, Slossa is largely cabbage chopped finely so that on the spoon it looks like grits, but in the mouth it has a satisfying crunch. Ben stays doing condiment cup shots of relish for like half an hour here. And as he does more and more, he's realizing a crowd is starting to gather around her stand. Ben is realizing the effect that crowds have on sales. A uh, long drawn out story here. Slossa earned a slot at Trader Joe's and they started selling big. It's like a Shark Tank story. Ben goes on to further profile Julie, the seller of the coleslaw. Is another woman in a man's world, common theme for the book. Lynn, what's her name? Julie, she started with General Mills, the cereal company, doing distribution for NASCAR. That's a pretty tough start. She had to go to a NASCAR arena to get the attention of drunk fans, try to sell them cereal. They want a different kind of hops lady. To sum up her timeline, Julie is a grown woman who is willing to work hard and who has a gut-level certainty her hard work will pay off. Slossa was a family recipe. 
and it finally took the right quirky entrepreneur to come along and sell the goods. And we're going to have to come back to this point, more of the circular plot from Benji. Remember the name of the chapter, Self-Realization Through Snacking? It's got to be one of the funnier names of chapters I've heard over the years. <laughs> You're really becoming more aware by shoving potato chips into your face. The name of this chapter should have definitely been Self-Realization Through Selling. This OCD chick was able to cure all of her ailments by, I don't know, becoming more self-aware and going to NASCAR races. <laughs> you get the point here. He told Julie how most entrepreneurs give up when they apply for FDA approval. And Julie went through all of the painstaking government deterrences for people starting commerce. <laughs> how you advance from the farmer's market to the fancy food show is your own path. Like um, that herky-jerky thing. They went underground for a longer time. They didn't have an FDA approval. And for them to ever get picked up by a grocer, they have to get out of this friggin' convention circuit and play the game with the big dogs, the government. You know what I'm saying here? It's the same thing as Brian Chesky. When he became a millionaire, he had to be appointed a cultural advisor from the state. Let me give you a quote about the industry here. Ben says, Kroger, Aldi, Whole Foods, Costco, your local food co-op, and Walmart do not exist without the grocery continuum. Whether from big to small or fancy to bare bones, instead each occupies an entirely different niche in the retail ecosystem, offering a whole distribution world unto itself. If you're vending cattle, you better take the Kroger executive out for dinner. You know, that's how you're going to get your shit approved to be in the stores. It's it's dirty corruption, and it's even dirtier because you're dealing with the best cuts of food. Of course, it's all going to be in a tiered, um, what did he call it, continuum of groceries. This has got to be the best job ever, to be that Kroger executive where you get taken out on steak dinners every single night. <laughs> ben said... Buyer dealings could last for years after a convention and often wound it up in rescinded offers. <laughs> so you could just like keep one of these entrepreneurs on the hook for year after year. Eh, I'll try it next year and you'll get a spot in Trader Joe's. I'm trying to portray some empathy for the other side like we did last chapter. I mean, this is what a girl does every single weekend of her life you go on a date and shoot down another entrepreneur <laughs> you don't want the meat that he's selling well now you get to go try something new he told the story of uh, Golding Farms they were the first people to add barbecue flavoring to ketchup so you got like barbecue sauce demanded a high price Kraft Heinz was able to come in and instead of buying up Golding Farms original family recipe Kraft Heinz invented A1 steak sauce. Some creepy shit going up at the patent office, but I don't think you could really patent food. A1, the biggest steak sauce you've ever heard of, came in and stole a tiny farm's recipe. <laughs> I'm saying the point of this chapter is not to make you feel bad about entrepreneurship. Golding Farms should have kept the family recipe on their person again until the right entrepreneur came along or until something like shark tank existed 
like somewhere where you could go to get exposure and then sell your product online. People grocery shop online today anyway. What are we talking about here, people? You don't need the stores. You're going to need fucking 20 boosters to go to the grocery store soon. Self-realization through snacking. Okay, chapter four, the retail experience. <laughs> Starts going deep here. Ben, for this chapter, undergoes Whole Foods orientation. Anybody else notice over the past two years, Whole Foods has become the Auschwitz of grocery stores? The employees have taken on the responsibility of a brown shirt. Ben says the hiring process for Whole Foods includes two phone interviews, an in-person group interview, followed by role-playing and a background check, and then two 12-hour sessions of orientations learning the mission and philosophy of Whole Foods. <laughs> the philosophy of the Ubermensch, maybe. Like at Whole Food Nazis. Ben is saying in the beginning, biblical quote, Whole Foods opened just nine stores between 1980 and 1992 and then went through a rapid period of growth that led to our present moment in winter 2015 with 427 total stores and a new Whole Foods opening every eight to ten days. They're invading us. <laughs> and isn't that funny? It's a similar number to Piggly Wiggly and Trader Joe's. These things all grow at the same speed. <laughs> What makes Whole Foods difference in terms of onboarding is they acknowledge how bad it sucks. This is in Ben's opinion. Every company is cool now, and they know that it's a real slog out there, man. Ben describes a long list of seven customers who are hard to handle. Like, they understand that Karens exist at Whole Foods, except they call it the seven dwarves philosophy. <laughs> A quote from their indoctrination, I mean onboarding program. We learn that we must treat these challenging guests with respect because it costs six times more to attract more customers than it does to keep an old one. Ben is given this like Orwellian code name at his store. You have to deal with the sleepies, the docs. <laughs> and then the guy who has to play the nice person is called Mr. Green. This is a fucking Travis Scott concert. We got a Smurf on aisle five. <laughs> Mr. Green out here. Benjamin spends half the chapter complaining that his manager has worse person skills than him. And so he should be the manager. <laughs> Benjamin's trying to, like, rearrange the entire work structure that we have in this country. Every single workplace is a communist pyramid scheme. It doesn't matter what your skill is or what your human individual purpose would best fit the company. It's just how long you've been there decides how much you're getting paid. Like, Ben is fucking LARPing a job here. It kind of gets you mad reading it. You want a fucking piece of the retail experience? I'm shaking with anger here. Benjamin, it is eight hours a day of a hostage situation. <laughs> Managers, the Mr. Green, will come over and reassure the customer how right they are. Customer's always right. My employee here, he's retarded. Don't listen to him. Like, management in retail stores is the only spot where you have to sell out your employee in front of their face. It's some of the most demoralizing shit you'll ever experience. The only time a retail manager stood up for me 
was when I got called a racist. <laughs> like, I hate this manager. They still tried to fuck me out of transferring my job to another location. It's net bad morality on this person. But they realized, <laughs> like, you can't slander my employee's character because he's going to leave this job and still be called a rate. Like, there are some lines that managers understand can't be crossed, but at the end of the day, you're their slave. Ben was excited for his first day on the floor. I'll slow down a little bit here. You can tell I'm getting angry. It's his first day on the floor. Ben is excited to use his employee discount, <laughs> to which he finds out it's only 10%. <laughs> People, why would the person who's trying to make money off of you be giving you a discount? They're a drug dealer. They're not there to help you. It's a food dealer in the case of Whole Foods. They're there to waste your wages. This is a ploy for you to put money back into the system 10% off. Go fuck yourself. I'm going to go buy clearance at the Mexican supermarket. Ben continues the chapter complaining about his manager, Ollie. Ollie makes more than the Hispanics in the fish department that go home smelling like guts. <laughs> Again, you know, welcome to the workforce, dude. You're paid for whose dick you suck, not how hard you work. Okay? Let's just get this straight here. Ben was working in uh, produce, so he was taught how to shelf modify and put uh, moldy spots of their produce facing the back. Ben had a quote here regarding some of the guys that frequent the stores. Pretty funny quote. One of the first things you realize working retail grocery is that people in general are hideous and insane, but their depravity almost miraculously balances out the ledger of the day so that aside from bruised feelings and egos, which never really balance, the store itself makes out just fine. You're taking home this negative emotional toll every single day, and the store makes out just fine. Like, of course, it's a business. I'm not a communist here. This is why the burnout rate is so high at these places. It's a fucking... <laughs> Maybe you're not destroying your back like a fucking uh, guy on a jackhammer. You're destroying your brain. The fish guy had a funny quote here. You'll have a tiny little man who could barely see above the counter berating you for a cut of slab of $32 per pound king salmon into progressively cutting it into smaller and smaller pieces as to prove some volumetric version of Archimedes' paradox until you're left with reams of unsaleable king salmon that he promptly walks away from because you fucked it all up and that isn't what he asked for. The customer is always right. Fucking Archimedes Paradox. This has to be the most poetic fish salesman, Benjamin, embellishing for the narrative. <laughs> ben said the customer service sucks twice as hard in retail because those who feel guilty and want to tip aren't allowed to. Uh, who did I say before? You can't tip an Amazon driver so they fucking throw your package onto your doorstep. <laughs> like... It's fucking demoralizing. The people feel bad for you, and that's almost just as bad as the people who come in and just, you know, put on their mask. If you're going to pay me under the poverty line, at least let me accept tips. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing makes sense. If we really get, like, philosophical here on the avant-garde theater of groceries, the theater of retail, you're playing the passive observer. Like, as a bartender, you are an active observer. You can chime into people's conversations, check up on them. You're running a situation. The passive observer has 
only the job of reacting. And I know these aren't exact comparisons because we're talking about fucking theater here. No exaggeration. Reaction drains one's vitality more than action. We could go mind control ultra on you and the fucking brain science of it. When you have to pretend somebody's shit story is good, you're literally giving them fucking mana or something. They're sucking your energy. It's more mentally healthy, honestly, we've read this in Nietzsche, to admit to yourself, I am a slave. This is a master-slave paradigm that I am subbing myself into. You're a slave. Like, you're just lower than the lowest-level actor out there, so you have to take all the comedic relief. When you work these jobs, like, you create your NPC mode. I have a tree of five responses I say to people all day, and it still sucks ass. Listen to this quote here. Ben is quoting from the boarding modules. If a customer is angry, you are calm. If they are saying something they think is smart, you are interested. <laughs> that they think is smart, you are in This is anti-human behavior. Our brain is mostly mirror neurons. So you react to the person, they're telling a happy story, and you act like you're happy as well. Okay, so turn all of that off. You're going into a higher brain function for eight hours a day to deal with insane people, as his quote said before. You have to play the straight man for every single schizophrenic that comes through this grocery store. Do we understand this avant-garde theater? You have to maintain the calia, like the plot line for all these people. There was this tip in the book about how to not speak your mind. You should pretend that everybody that comes in is five years old. Um, this will totally destroy your method of communication throughout your life. Have you ever talked to a fucking kindergarten teacher? They always talk down to you. Like, nobody likes to be talked down to. Fucking, I just try to put some information out here on the show, not trying to contradict myself here and be a position of authority. I do have a six-pack, though. <laughs> um, yeah, talk to people like they're five years old. That's a healthy way to cope with life. Ends the chapter talking about time manufacturing. <laughs> Holy shit. All right, I'm not at the height of my anger yet, apparently. So, you know when you get a new job and they're like, you know, you're getting a real treat working at this establishment. We give you your schedule two weeks out every single week. Benjamin Lohr said that corporations learned in the 1980s what is called just-in-time scheduling. <laughs> so, you know, you do the actual bare minimum and act like you're doing everything to keep your employees around. It's the point of you can make more money if you keep people hanging on the shortest string. Like, you know how you have to request a year in advance to have one day off, <laughs> but you only know when you're going to work a fortnight ahead. It was even worse for Ben at Whole Foods, he said. You're supposed to get the schedule two weeks ahead. Walter tells me, the boss, I can't remember a single time in my six years that ever happened. Let me do it again in his voice. I can't remember a single time in my six years that ever happened, and if it did happen, it would change the following week. Usually, we get the schedule out two days ahead. A lot of team members have to call to find out when they're working. Again, they just try to make it sound like everything's your fault because you're the employee. Tell me when I'm working more than 15 days in advance. <laughs> 
Like when you accept a retail job, it's very much more than working eight hours a day. As I said, there's the psychological toll and the burnout. You are surrendering your ability to make plans further than 15 days ahead. <laughs> Do you realize what this does to your goal planning complex and some of the higher brain functions? Like when you don't know your schedule, you become inept. <laughs> I don't know if it's psychological warfare, but they're doing a pretty good job at it. Have fun at fucking Whole Foods, which fucking one of my jobs are supermarkets, so I'm not trying to make fun of the listeners out here. I'm just um, commiserating with you. And I was just talking about your schedule. How the fuck do you expect me to schedule my second and my third job when you're only telling me how far two weeks in advance? Like, I'm just sounding like your coworker now. We'll get more quotes in here. <laughs> the workplace is a complete pile of shit. Here's a quote here. Great insight from Ben to end the chapter. The reality of Whole Foods is that its myth of abundance and efficiency is based on the idea that there are an abundance of Walters out there willing to pour six years of their life into a $15 per hour job, yet remain cheerful, eager, ready to serve, ale the virtuous, and food those that can't pay. Holy shit, man. <laughs> I didn't even think about it like that. You are dealing with the beggars like when you have to check out people with their ebt shit <laughs> you're fucking doing what the soup kitchen should be and the government i don't know man if you're gonna work as hard as walter you should probably try to start your own convenience store otherwise let's fucking get drunk and not care about anything moving along to chapter five backstage theater of retail <laughs> Starts this one talking about the theater of the absurd again. Did you guys like the uh, introduction for this video? I hope so. It was about all the uh, secret life of groceries and how they know what happens when they leave the doors. <laughs> Funny movie. In this theater of the absurd, you know there's got to be a showrunner in terms of groceries, a king. Listen to this quote from Colin Campbell. Sounds like a middle-aged dictator. Such control is not merely a question of ensuring that others submit to my will, but it is more a matter of possessing complete power over all sources of sensation so that the continuous adjustment can be made which ensures prolonged pleasure. There will, however, be an irreducible element of frustration even the most powerful individuals encounter. Dude, Colin Campbell, are you selling soup? or thermodynamic weapons. <laughs> Bro, this is art of war, not how to sell pears. What the fuck is this guy talking about? This Colin Campbell guy is really closely intertwined with Kevin Kelly, who is like the um, Don Draper for Campbell's Soup. And you know Campbell's Soup did um, Andy Warhol. They had that campaign together. Like, this is a real thing. We're going to go into the Andy Warhol philosophy book eventually. This shit goes deep with the connections, so just try to fucking not be willfully ignorant here. Kevin Kelly works under David Campbell. Kevin Kelly is the guy who designed optimal flow and throughput for supermarkets. Benjamin interviewed him for the book, and he showed him the schematics of, you know, the milk has to be in the back of the store. You gotta fucking travel the Silk Road to get a piece of butter. Kevin told Ben... 
we want to understand the subconscious aspects of how space triggers behavior. And then we want to use those triggers to create joy, to create joy, not to create money or profit. Again, that's why the fucking beans are a mile away from the soup. It's not to create distraction and you buying more shit is to make you happy. This guy's using double speak on us. Kevin Kelly's told Benjamin the shopping experience is supposed to recharge customers and the shopping experience should make them feel like a hero. You have a quest to gather items and the cashier is supposed to be the boss. <laughs> Can I, is this a first person shooter? It is in King Supers. Do heroes normally return from their epic feeling recharged? <laughs> like did um, Odysseus, that guy came home, told the epic and then killed himself. <laughs> like when you, after you go shopping, you feel a little bit tired. You feel like, whoa, I just did something. It's supposed to make you feel recharged, apparently. Kevin worked with Harley Davidson for a while. He found out that when you let people test ride, things go up. And so Kevin Kelly did a uh, campaign with Costco for a while. And that's why they were the first ones to do the uh, test rides. You know, I go up and down the aisles. I come back with a fake mustache, the Groucho Marx glasses. I always pretend I'm a different identity so I could get more dino nuggets. Kevin Kelly reassures us, remember, we're not trying to manipulate anyone. We're listening to people. <laughs> we're not manipulating people. We're making them subconsciously do what we want. <laughs> we'll give you free food. That's us listening to you. I'm telling you, these food stores are drug dealers. Like, I did buy cauliflower pasta recently. That's why I dropped that reference before. And then the uh, coupon machine printed me out a thing for that exact whatever again. I only bought it because it was on sale. And then they try to get you hooked exactly like a good dealer would. Ben actually wrote, Eric Slosher would have had a ball questioning Kevin Kelly's ethics. <laughs> See, that makes me laugh uncontrollably because it's literary humor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Eric Slosher is the guy who wrote Fast Food Nation. I think we're going to have him back around this Thanksgiving to do another one of these type of episodes. Uh, yeah, Eric Slosher is the king of moral food. And <laughs> he's like Kevin Kelly's the devil out here. Devil foods. He's going, you shouldn't have to pay a premium for non-iodized salt or non-fluoridated water. Kevin Kelly is all about <laughs> the parochial philosophy. Bigger issues that lead to Ben called the ethics of labeling. So this is kind of one of the most important points of the book. What deems something organic? Top tier quote from Benjamin here. Government regulation of food is as spotty as a 14-year-old boy's beard. <laughs> it has grown out of federal agencies with conflicting and conflicted mandates. It is driven by the political qualities of food and the political contributions of lobbyists, rather than, say, a public-minded quest for fairness or consistency. Isn't it clear all these lobbied provisions exist because the government cares about our health? I mean, let's um, grow up a little bit here. <laughs> The government cares about our health. That's why the FDA is regulating cigarettes and you go to jail for drinking raw milk. <laughs> you know, raw milk is pretty organic, straight from the tit. It's weird how that doesn't get a organic classification. 
what the fuck is the FDA using as a basis here? It's kind of like the CDC and vaccine now. They just go, uh, yeah, we could change it every 10 years. Like, there's no one definition of a vegetable, people. There's roots, there's shoots, there's barks. Like, I don't know, man. They just try to use this authoritative fallacy. We told you what the food pyramid is, so you come to us for your food information now. Never trust these fucks. Like, got milk? No, got pasteurized milk. You're not allowed to drink raw milk. These fucking propaganda campaigns kill thousands of people. It's one of the topics I really think we could save lives with, people. I've been uh, making up some songs recently to get through the misery. I think some hardcore listeners out there might remember my first uh, top 40 chart hit. Another girl touch my nuts. <laughs> The newest one. I wrote this little ditty about the news. Hit that bass line. Can't trust it. Can't trust it. <laughs> the corporate press. Bombshell stat here. In 2009, the Government Accountability Office estimated that only 0.001% of all imported food products were inspected for fraud or mislabeling. Whoa! <laughs> okay, so the FDA, the Government of Accountability, the people who we expect to check our food, they admitted in a report only 0.001% of all imports are inspected. Ben hammers this point home to a fucking irredeemable amount. The Department of Commerce gave the Accountability Office a 40% accuracy rating in their testing. <laughs> so, like, we admit it. No, nothing's being tested. That minuscule 0.001% of food they do test is only accurate 50% of the time. So this is point zero 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 one percent safety. I'm not trying to scare you here. Food is much safer than the government makes you. Oh my God, E. coli, be afraid. No, it's very, very safe. And it's not safe because the government makes it safe for you. They don't check jack shit. Point zero 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 five percent. Let me pull the curtain back a little bit more. Was there anything else you remember over the past two years that had a point... 0.001% risk of fatality? Oh yeah, that risk shut down the entire world. So we are <laughs> running the same exact statistical risk three times a day when we eat and nobody gives a flying fuck. Like, I don't know how I could ever in my life mathematically proof risk better than that your food is just as much risk as c c fucking getting the coronavirus uh, i'm gonna fucking throw this microphone on the floor and end the episode life is about assessing risk these bureaucrats they claim to protect you but they take away your autonomy and provide no significant safety statistically you are not any safer with these people at the top Ben hits the point home even harder. A whopping 4.5% of domestic food production facilities are inspected by government regulators each year. 4.5%. Better than imports, yes. But when 1,000 of 1% is your bar, maybe stepping over it isn't quite the level of accountability we have in mind. A pretty decent point here. 
maybe it's our fault. <laughs> like, we're not holding these people accountable for anything. Why should Bill Gates be allowed to own half of the farmland? Shouldn't there be an antitrust law against that? A monopoly buster? <laughs> Things are only going to get worse until more people care. Ben showed how companies make money off of this. Like, Taco Bell says, we had an E. coli outbreak. So then they're able to sue the individual suppliers of their ground beef. And Taco Bell never closes for a day. They are able to actually make money back on who they sued. And they get more press in the news. One of my neighbors growing up, I remember, got hit by the Taco Bell E. coli. And she went the following month. <laughs> I don't know. That just makes me laugh. Like, this racket can only work with the FDA letting Taco Bell stay open. Shouldn't the failure have gotten shut out of the market? That's how free commerce works. But no, the FDA lets Taco Bell continue with their powdered meat. If you cook at Taco Bell, you have to sign a non-disclosure. The meat is made out of... I just said it. You can't believe it. Hear it twice. The meat is made out of powder. We're speaking about accountability we got to hold some of these fucks accountable. Go back and read that Anthony Bourdain book, uh, Medium Raw. He talked about food poisoning, like building up a sickness for uh, your immune system. Like your stomach has a tolerance for food poisoning. And so maybe it's not 0.0001% risk. It's probably much less. <laughs> Hobos eat 7-Eleven for dinner every single night and they're alive you know people in uh, foreign third world countries eat mud they actually eat the half digested intestines from cows they eat poop like the more crap you eat the stronger your stomach can get and if you were raised off of Johnson and Johnson baby formula your whole life you've probably been building a tolerance for sugar in America since your first day <laughs> Jesus in this world, like, you want to take a tolerance break, fasting is the only way to do it. And getting off of sugar is one of the best things you could ever do for your brain. Um, I'm saying this because he ends the chapter about Mr. Kevin Kelly bringing to America the bliss point. We should hang Kevin Kelly and drag his body through the streets for this. Guy went to a Belgian country, and they discovered the optimal amount of sugar to put in their chocolate before it became too sweet. You go down the candy aisle in the supermarket and it says 50% cacao, 70% cacao is just how much sugar they're adding to this thing. It's not natural, it's not organic, <laughs> like it probably says. What these Belgian chocolatiers figured out was the bliss zone. More studies in the U.S. showed that it can be applied to any food. Not just sugar, not just candy. It could be applied to salt, savory, any other type of food. If you add a gram of sugar, it makes that food more addictive. And how does that work without even being sweet? It's like a non-psychoactive drug. Um, sugar is more addictive than cocaine. <laughs> so they just literally spike all of our food with it. Go watch that movie, Fed Up. It's a documentary well-researched. 80% of food in supermarkets has the bliss point fucked into it. Like, why are we letting Kevin... <laughs> I don't know. Back to the baby formula. Like, our palates are broken to only be able to tolerate the bliss point. You go over to Europe and try peanut butter. 
ew, this is gross. It's not sweet enough. <laughs> it's because your mouth is literally broken. Kevin, Ke you can fix it if you fast and if you do these long periods of changing your palate. It sucks. It's hard. I'm just giving you the solutions. You can't put things into people's food without telling them. Fucking Kevin Kelly probably thinks roofing girls is ethical. Like, I read the nutritional tracks as if it was a novel. That stupid label on the back of everything. I clog up the aisles in the grocery store every single time. They are poison in every single thing on the shelves. <laughs> That's a wild uh, thing that you could probably read an entire book on, though. The Bliss Point, truly evil. And the chapter on a quote showing how Kevin gets in the headspace of the consumer. James describes himself as tasteful and classy, but if you look at what he actually craves, it is lasagna and red wine. Quinoa is an adventure, and he doesn't want adventurous food, Kevin explains, but he also wants simple. He wants the classics upgraded and reinvented. You can, uh, like, fill out in your app, this is what I want to be sold, and the algorithm is still going to try to change your taste and make you like what it wants you to like. Don't trust these apps. They're drug dealers as well. And remember, he started the chapter saying he aims to make us the hero of our shopping adventure. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure. He just said... You wouldn't like quinoa. I'll choose your adventure. It sounds kind of like he's taking us for a ride more than he's providing an adventure. <laughs> Go to chapter 6, pick up the pace. Bottom of the commodity chain. Ben, choosing a sob story about an immigrant, draws out for 50 pages. It's basically a Filipino guy that used the Trader Joe's model in the Philippines. Filipinos, they love to copy American culture. Anybody been to a Jollibee? That is lower quality McDonald's, which is pretty hard to do. This is when Ben went on the boat for the book, and he was in the Andamandian Sea near Malaysia. Ben says, the trawl net, <laughs> trawl, that's a funny word, is many things to many things, but to the bottom of the sea, it is a bulldozer and wrecking ball. The giant steel anchor ways plows through the ecosystem, crushing coral rock, smashing bivalves and crustaceans, obliterating nooks and crannies. He's just fucking painting like a really dark picture about the commercial farm fishing. The density of fatigued fish increased as they accumulated one by one. First a thick swarm, then fish pinned horizontally to the water flow by steady addition, crushed under their own weight. It's like a bad scene. They're becoming the fish paste from the beginning of the book. Have you ever seen a trawl net? These videos are some of the best on the internet. You can, holy shit, just pull up tens of tons of fish it looks like one giant biomass, and it's uh, cleaner looking in the nature documentaries. Ben is saying, in reality, the weight of the fish crush the smaller ones against the net. That's really ethical. We destroy their ecosystem, torture them in their final moments of life, and then desecrate their bodies. I think humans are the invasive species. Angelfish get all the blame. Ben visited fishing communities along the coast of Myanmar. He's seen all these loads of pollution coming from the fishing uh, trawls. Like we could debate about climate change all day long. Pollution is a very real problem. 
Does anyone remember a couple years ago, a little 14-year-old girl got a <laughs> Nobel Priest Prize for saying, how dare you? At that same year when Greta Thunberg won the Science Prize, there was another 14-year-old girl who invented this enzyme that breaks down plastic. And some entrepreneurs were saying, we could just spray this on Garbage Island in the Pacific, and it'll be gone in a little bit. And instead, Greta Thunberg wins the prize for scaring people about global warming rather than making actionable change. It's all about fear. I don't like stressing over these things. Like, human ingenuity is going to figure it out. In China, they have the most CO2 output. They're also inventing these giant buildings that suck smog out of the atmosphere. I think Team Human is going to win, even if we are the invasive species. Filipino fishermen is selling to all these gross Myanmar and Filipino fishing cities. You know, instead of milk distribution, this guy is learning how to trade larva and all kinds of stuff for fishermen. <laughs> we better start learning how to farm grubs. This is what I think Bezos, what's his name, Bill Gates is buying up all the farmland for. They're saying we're going to eat crickets. Grub worms are a much uh, more cheap form of protein that you could farm. I think that was in Blade Runner or one of those futuristic movies. We're all going to be eating caterpillars. And actually went to the Filipino guy's larva farm, he said. If you pull a sample from these larva pools on day one, it's sea monkeys, moats, floating in water, about 500,000 per tank. By day four, these moats will look just like slightly alive gnats, flickering around in Brownian motion visualized. Very fucking poetic larva farmers. <laughs> now that one was out of Ben's mouth. See how quick those things grow? Eight days and you could go from sea monkey to millions of slugs. I mean, like I've tried those lollipops with cockroaches in the middle. <laughs> you know, all these like novelties. I'll eat the bugs if I want. Jeff Bezos, shove a cricket up your ass. You're not going to tell me how much meat I can put in my body. Ben was happy here. The distribution center started to take off. And he's going, you need to follow the... uh Panama Papers, what was it called before? The algorithm papers that Joe Colombo would write. Uh, ben got him set up on how to keep track of all of his debits and credits. I don't know, there's hope in nations that are using the early United States models and aren't totally succumbed to corruption yet. Only time is going to tell. I would like to see less factory farming. I would like to see less Kevin Kelly manipulation of the marketplace. All we have is the power over ourselves, which I think in the case of nutrition is enough. Thank you guys for listening. We'll have more editions like these. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Benjamin Lohr's The Secret Life of Groceries. Super fun edition. Switching it up for sure. And as I said, next week we are going to do our themed episode, so hold your horses. Make sure you're checking out the Patreon and the Instagram. Ladies and gentlemen, next week we have... Robert Greene's The Art of Seduction. It's time to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Neil Strauss on who is actually the king of pole. Robert Greene breaks down all of the characters of seduction and how you can actually apply this 
to what your personality would most fit with. Anybody could get laid. Everybody is attractive to someone out there. It's a fun one. We're getting naughty. This guy also wrote the 48 Laws of Power, which we'll have on here eventually. It's really going to do it for us today. It was definitely a good time. I'll see you all in just seven short days. My name is Nick Munez. Love you all. Stay healthy. Peace.